welcome to Creekside Church. It's great to have everyone here. Uh, we are here in the house of the Lord today to worship Him and to uh, observe some special things, which we'll talk about in a minute. So we want to just start off with a, a scripture reading. Uh, Mike's going to share with us. Yep. Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. He, it is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name, for the Lord is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. your attention to a couple of announcements and make a comment about the service. First of all, welcome to each and every one of you who's worshiping with us this morning. If this is your uh, very first time at Creekside Church and you're here as a, as a guest, um, maybe you're here for the baptism, maybe you're not, if it, this is the case. On the bulletin, there's a little extra flap there. If you can find a pen or a pencil, if you would fill that out and complete it and then drop it in the, uh, there's an offering box on the table in the entryway. As you leave, if you feel free, that would be great. We just uh, welcome you here. We're thankful that you're worshiping with us this morning. There is an Awana training time uh, on the 23rd, so that's in the bulletin, so please make note of that. Also, I would like to uh, just remind the young people that there's a youth camp out coming up um, this coming Friday, so you can talk to Pastor Jesse about that. We have a special service for you this morning. We're having a couple of young gals that are going to be baptized this morning. And I just wanted to uh, say thanks for, for joining us and let you know, uh, kind of share the, the pillars upon which we uh, build our practice of baptism at Creekside Church. So you can just get a feel for it. So there's three pillars. First of all, there's the mandate. Jesus said in Matthew 28, uh, verses uh, 18 and 20, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So it's a commandment. The Lord commands his followers to baptize and to be baptized. Okay? Secondly, there's the meaning of baptism. And uh, the Apostle Paul was in prison in Acts chapter 16. And the prison doors were shaken. And Paul and Silas were freed. And the jailer was freaking out because he knew that if his prisoners got out, he would be put to death. And so he said... To Paul, and he goes, he went up, what, what, what must I do to be saved? And I don't think he meant just from the Romans, but from condemnation, because Paul and Silas had been singing about the, the Lord. And Paul said this in Acts 16, 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then the text goes on to say that they explained the gospel to them, and they, they, they put their faith and the trust in Jesus' death as the payment for their sin, his resurrection is proof that he had conquered sin and death to make them righteous, and then they were baptized, or they were baptized having believed. So it's our understanding in the New Testament that baptism is something that comes after 
belief. So belief proceeds or precedes baptism as a testimony. It doesn't make us a child of God. It is a message that we are a child of God. So when these two young ladies are being baptized, they're not saying that the water is somehow transforming them or changing them or making them something different than they are. They're simply saying that what we're doing is standing up before you and through this symbolism testifying that we are truly children of God. They're trusting in Christ's death and resurrection as the payment for their sins and they're telling the world, I'm a follower of Jesus and I want you to know that. So that's the meaning and then the uh, the, the mandate and the meaning and the method. Um, I was privileged to go to, to India uh, a few months ago. And when I was there, I came across a, a combination of food that I had never put together before, okay? And uh, I'm, I'm, it, was, it was different but delicious. In fact, I had it for lunch yesterday, okay? It's white rice and plain yogurt, okay? And you go... Warmed up, of course. The rice is warm, and then you put the cool yogurt on top of it, and you mix it all together. And you go, but now, it makes sense to me when you're in India, you eat this stuff, because you've eaten all this curry, and you've gotten all these spices in you, and then you just kind of, uh, you know, you tame it down when you, when you have, now, I, I think that's why, why they do it. Uh, but it's good. It's different, but it's delicious. So some of you will see a practice of baptism here that's different, perhaps, than you have been aware of before, it's going to be, these young ladies are going to get all wet, okay? They're going to get completely immersed. And the reason we do that is because we think that the, the, the outward symbol should be an accurate representative of what's really true. So they're, they're saying, we identify with Jesus in his death, so they go down into the water, and in his burial, and they stay in the water, and then they come up out, and in his resurrection, so that the method reflects the meaning of the baptism, so that's what we're all about. Okay, take it away. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself so that I might be with him someday, so that I could be face to face with the one true God. I want to be baptized because I want people to know that I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and I have been saved because he died for me. When I was younger, I realized that I needed the Lord and I couldn't live without him. I desperately wanted to have a relationship with him. That night I knew I was saved after I repented my sins because the Holy Spirit was inside of me. I'm excited to have God in my life to serve and trust forever. I'm going to read Lexi's favorite verse. Um, we're in Romans 8, 37 through 39. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I was going through a really rough patch in my life and I felt like I hit rock bottom and that's when I remember feeling the urge to like truly follow Jesus because he is enough to save me and I'm done with him. Let the king of my heart 
Always a, always a good day when we have a baptism. It's such an encouragement and uh, grateful for the step of these two young ladies to testify of their faith in Christ. And so we're grateful for that. Young people, you are dismissed for baptism or for baptism, <laughs> for Sunday school. Uh, if you want to go to Sunday school, uh, as long as you're uh, fifth grade or under, you're good, okay? Uh, <laughs> all right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to lift up Aubrey and Lexi, and I thank you, Father, for the courage that they exhibited to testify to the world of their faith in Jesus. As you've said, Lord, um, if we are not willing to tell the world and you if we deny you you'll deny us and I pray for these two young ladies that you'd strengthen them and encourage them in their walk with Christ I know that the enemy will throw everything he has at them to discourage and dissuade and to um, uh, encourage them to fall away from you but I pray that you'd encourage them and strengthen them by your grace and for your glory now take your word speak to our hearts bring about your transformation and again not just an accumulation of knowledge for your glory and for the gain of your kingdom, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've heard that road rage in Iowa is on the increase, you know, where uh, somebody offends you when you're driving in traffic and then you uh, immediately, quickly, wickedly try to take revenge or do something. Uh, and I had to chuckle this morning as I'm, uh, as I'm driving here, uh, behind schedule, and uh, somebody just kind of slowly creeped in front of me to turn the corner, and I found myself going, and then I checked myself, okay, no, 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 no road rage, but see, in, in a time of offense, even God's servants oftentimes seek their own justice, we seek vengeance, rather than godly obedience or reliance upon God to do his justice. It's like, I want my pound of flesh, and if God wants to take some later, that's okay. But no, this is not God's, this is not God's plan. And so this guy we've been looking at in our study of 1 Samuel by the name of David refused to avenge himself last week in chapter 24 against Saul. Now we find him seeking revenge. In chapter 25, and it's like, what is that all about? It's Abigail's intervention in this text of chapter 25. Shows God's work in God's servant then, and God's work in God's servants now. His providential work, okay, to to restrain and prevent folly in the lives of his people, and, and to produce and propel us to faithfulness and fully trusting God. So as we look at the text, that's what I want us to be thinking about, is that God works supernaturally to intervene providentially, to keep us from doing stupid stuff, and to move us along in our commitment to be faithful followers in obedience to Him. The truth of God's restraining providence, a term I'm going to define, okay? His restraining providence. The tenacity of our obedience and the trustworthiness of God in every circumstance support and sustain all of us as children of God. His providential restraint, our faithful obedience, and 
his trustworthiness are to support us and to strengthen us as we walk this, walk this faith. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel 25. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat back, uh, under the seat in front of you somewhere, or some of you have the app on your phone or, or, or device, whatever you want to do. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, so it's also on the screen. So if you just want to follow along on the screen, it's probably going to be closer to what I'm going to read. And in this text of chapter 25, we're going to observe three stages in God's providential work to restrain our tendency towards impulsive foolishness. And this reinforces both the priority and the prize of obediently trusting God. First Samuel chapter 25, I'm going to begin with verse 1. I'm not going to read through all verse 44 verses, okay? I wish I would, I would like to and take the time to do it, but uh, time restraints to exposit, I'm not going to. So I'm going to read through the verse, verse 17 to get us going. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David rose, arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, now there was a man of Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep. Now I don't know how it is in the ESV, but the New American Standard, then it goes off on a parenthesis, okay? There's a parenthetical thought to describe the man and his wife. That's verse 3. Now the man, uh, man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, and, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Now in verse 4, we pick up where we left off in verse 2. So David hears that he's shearing sheep in Carmel, and that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, <clears throat> and David said to the young men, he coached them up, you know, here's what you're supposed to say, go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have and now I've heard that you have shears now your shepherds have been with us and we have not insulted them nor have we missed anything all the days they were in Carmel ask your young men and they will tell you therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes for we have come on a festive day please give whatever you find at hand to your servants to your son David when David's young men came they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name then they waited but Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are breaking away from their master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shares and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their the way and went back and they came and told him according to all these words. And David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword, so each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. But one of young, the young men told Abigail, now this would have been one of Nabal's young men, okay, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them, or uh, railed at them, as the ESV puts it, and I, I think that's probably the best, better translation. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything, as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. 
They were, all, they were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the time we were with them, rending, tending the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you should do. For evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. I'm going to continue. Then Abigail, verse 18, hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down to her and so she met them. And now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belonged to him. And when Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For, his, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is, his na- Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see your young men. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant for the Lord will certainly make for your, my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you all your days and, you shall, and, sh- nor sh- and should anyone arise to pursue you and seek your life then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from a hollow of a sling and it shall come about when the Lord shall do for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall appoint you a ruler over Israel that this shall not cause grief or troubled heart to my Lord both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself when the Lord shall deal well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Now that's a, a big pass part of it, but that's only part of the passage. So we see, first of all, these, what, are these, what are these three stages? The first is the test of our Lord's providence. What is the test? Well, providence. What is providence? First of all, providence. Now this is not like some, I didn't Google this, okay? So this is just kind of a, uh, an understanding of, of providence. It's God's gracious and oftentimes mysterious working in his servants' lives to sustain us, to strengthen us, to provide for us, to protect us. And there's two aspects to the test. First of all, in verse 1, a godly ally is silenced. Samuel dies. So there's no real spiritual restraint on Saul's hate for David now. Samuel's gone. And there's no spiritual consult for David because Samuel's gone. Secondly, good actors are scorned in the text in verses 2 through 13. So we read in the text that uh, there was this dude from Maon 
and he was down in Carmel doing some business. So I want to show you where Carmel is, uh, relative, so you, there's a lot of places on the map there, but it's across from the Dead Sea, okay, and, or you see the square there, so it's south east of, of Bethlehem, it's in that region towards the southern part of Judah. Okay, so we meet a rich dude. We meet a rich guy named, well, we don't know his name. We just read, meet a rich man, right? It's interesting that the text doesn't say what his name is right away. Uh, so he's the Jeff Bezos of, of, of Maom, all right? So he's a really rich guy, measured in goats and, and sheep. And then we see this parenthetical description in verse 3. And we see Nabal's vices. He's harsh and evil in his dealings. Set in contrast to his wife Abigail's virtues. She is intelligent and beautiful. He definitely married up. Okay, So he, he's got this beautiful wife who's intelligent. And she even describes him. Look at verse 25 if you remember. Here's how she describes her own husband. Uh, Please do not pay... Uh, do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, <laughs> Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name in folly. Literally, he's a fool. Not unintelligent, but unspiritual. Okay, He's got no spiritual sensitivities to him. Isaiah chapter uh, 32, verse 6 um, tells us and describes uh, who, who he, what it is. For a fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines toward wickedness to practice ungodliness and speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and withhold drink from the thirsty. This is Nabal. And he's a Calebite. I, I read that and I go, okay, Caleb was a good guy. He's related to David. That's the point. He's of the same lineage as David which makes it all the more ironic, okay? Nabal was defined by, and he was, and he was defending his possessions. In verses 4 through 8, uh, David's aware uh, that Nabal's uh, shearing the sheep, okay? So in verse 4, we're picking up where we left off in verse 2. So he's, he's shearing the sheep, and it says, if you read down in verse 8, look at verse 8, that's a festive day. We come on a festive day. You and I are going to go, well, sounds like a lot of hard work to me, <laughs> shearing sheep, and it is. But it is a festive day in the sense that they would throw a feast. This was their ingathering for those who didn't have crops. This was the ingathering. This is reaping all the wool, which is where they'd get their profit, and throw, the, throw a big party with lots of food and drink for their workers and for their families. So it was a festive day. And so they come on this festive day, and David sends 10 men with specific instructions. Now, you know the danger of name dropping, right? It's like somebody says, well, do you know so-and-so? And you go, well, I don't know, it depends. <laughs> uh, do you like so-and-so or do you like, not like so-and-so? That, that depends on whether I know them or not. So David says, tell him I'm sending you, okay? You're supposed to go in, in David's name, all right? And then David says, express to him my desire for his longevity. You have a long life and for your your." Household to have you to have peace, your household to have peace, and your possessions to have peace, or you could substitute health. I want prosperity for you. That's what I, I'm, I'm hoping for you. And then he says, hoping that, uh, you know, that Nabal would understand that these people are coming and they're very respectful and they're not hostile. 
Like, there's no threat here. They're, they're, they're only asking for stuff, you know. And so David, David hoped to play upon their good mood and the lots of food, you know. And so, so deal, you know, just give whatever you can afford. And notice the text says, in, uh, it says it in verse 7. He says, to your servants, your servants and to your son David. I mean, these are terms of humility. I mean, he's not, he's not demanding, okay, give us something to eat. He's in there being very cautious and kind. And this proves that he's, when, when we read in, uh, in verse 7 that your shepherds were with us, I, I like that phrase, it stuck out to me in 25 verse 7. It says, now your shepherds have been with us, and then if you go down to verse 15 and it says, as long as we went about with them. So what does that mean? It means that David and his men were hosting and protecting and watching over. He's coming, not asking for charity, but he's coming asking them for some compensation, from some goodwill because of they've done such a good job of protecting them. They, 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 they came with integrity. David's, David's claim of their integrity. We have not insulted them, nor have we, they missed anything. Nothing's missing from them. It, it could be corroborated, he says in verse 8. So just have him ask his men if we weren't being honorable guys. And then we see in verses 15 and 16, which I'm going to read again, that the young man from Nabal's house confirms it. In verse 15, what does he say? Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields, and they were a wall to us. I made this distinction in my mind. There's a difference between a wall and a fence. Kind of. Okay. Go along with me here. Humor me a little bit. So when I was in Haiti... Uh, uh, not every time, but one of the times, a couple of times when I was in Haiti, we stayed in a, I would call it a compound, because they had a fence around it, I mean a wall, I mean a wall, a real wall, and on the on top of the wall, they had shards of glass and razor wire that were in the cement. Now, what's that wall for? To keep people out. You're keeping people out. It's protection for the people inside. This is what David and his men were to Nabal's shepherds. They were a wall of, about them, and how does Nabal respond to David and his men's humble request? Well, harsh and evil. <laughs> That's what he responded, just like his, he belittled David and he berated David's men. Who is David, anyway? Who is the son of Jesse? Folks, everybody knew who David was. They knew his reputation and they, they knew his rank as a, upstanding member of Saul's army and then he insinuates that he's a traitor oh there's all kinds of guys running around going uh, away from their master these days okay that's my paraphrase but that's similar to what what the text says and then he railed the ESV is good it says he railed basically he screamed at David's men and and put them down all right he's, he's screaming at them in in his response his refusal to grant the request was offensive, and it revealed his obsession with his possessions. Notice, do you remember, I tried to, to emphasize it when I, when I read through it. Am I supposed to take my food prepared for my shears and give to people I do not know? So it's interesting the contrast. David's men go up, 
and they speak to Nabal, peace to you, peace to your household, peace to your people. They come back, bring the news, and now what? (laughs) Well, uh, here's what they're doing. Read verse 13. And David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So three times, peace, peace, peace. Verse 13, three times, gird on your sword, gird on your sword, gird on your sword. (laughs) They're not doing this for exercise. This is not a dry run. This is serious. It's a response to Nabal's rejection. Nabal's treatment of David, not accidentally, is parallel to the way Saul treated David. Nabal's treatment of David is parallel to Saul's treatment of David. Spurning him, belittling him, uh, treating him harshly and rashly as it was in chapter 4. Now David's present rage stands in stark contrast to his previous restraint. Remember chapter 24, he's like, oh, I'm not going to kill Saul even though he's sitting here right in front of me. I'm, I'm not going to take him out. But now he's like, I'm all on it. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. Well, think about it. Cut him some slack, I guess. Um, the dude's been running as a fugitive. Every time we've been seeing him, he's running, he's running, he's running, he's running. And he's got Saul uh, killing all of the, the priests of Nod. He's got uh, people chasing after him. Every time he turns around, they're going to turn him over to, to another group of people who are going to turn him over even when he helps them. It's like he's weary. And his weary, these weary fugitives had acted nobly. And they had been treated horribly. So impulsively, he responds with anger. It's understandable, but it's not explainable. I mean, it's explainable, but not excusable. That's what I'm going to say. It's explainable, but it's not excusable. And the fact is, folks, every one of us sitting here is David. Me, on the way to church to preach about this. Struggling with some slowpoke who just takes their time turning the corner while I'm trying to get to church. <laughs> you see, sometimes we tolerate it, but if we're in a hurry, no, not so much. Um, we accept criticism directed at us, but directed at my spouse or my children or my family. Woo! Then the gloves come off. No patty cake here. We're, 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 it's in, we're in the fight. But thankfully, praise God, that, that God works to prevent our folly and to propel us to faithfulness. This is the, the second stage, which is the turning of our Lord's providence. Notice the word but in verse 14. But, oh, wonderful. It introduces a shift in action. So that that God restrained David's hostile intentions by Abigail's intervention. She becomes the intervener, but not on her own. It's a God thing. It's God using her. And she steers, and, and, and this is how God does it. There's two factors that encourage us to appreciate the fact that God steers his servants away from sin. He he does. He wants now, don't hear me saying. You can push the envelope of sin and God's going to stop you just because you're pushing the envelope. This is not an excuse to try sinning, so see if God puts on the brakes. No, but when, when we get caught up in it, God often works this way. So first of all, God sends the right person. 
Abigail's Nabal's wife, she was informed, okay, that he had been offended and she acted, uh, and that they had acted nobly. And so Nabal was acting the fool and about his possessions. And the servant says they were a wall. And so he, he, he defended them. Now, Nabal's men had been treated honorably, but David and his men had been humiliated. And so in, in, in verse 17, now therefore, consider what you do. You're a smart woman. <laughs> Beautiful intelligence, figure something out. Please, because we're in danger. There's evil that is impending upon us. And, and, and he says, I got to talk to you because nobody can talk to your husband. That's my paraphrase, okay? You can't speak to the dude because he's just, he, it's gone. He's harsh in his dealings. And so then she, she says, she moves into action quickly, immediately. The text says in, in verse 18, then Abigail hurried and she gathered whatever supplies, she mobilized the resources and she put them on a couple of donkeys, sent them on ahead of her and says, I'm coming afterwards. She was doing the Jacob thing. Remember Jacob in Genesis chapter 32 when he's coming back to his own homeland and Esau is coming after him with a whole bunch of men and Jacob, like, he breaks a bunch, he sends some camels and he sends some donkeys and he sends some sheep and he's like placating his, his brother and that's what she does. She, she wisely seeks to, to placate uh, her, her, her enemy but you know the text then it says this little thing and it's kind of in passing but she didn't tell Nabal. Well, that's not very submissive. Uh, she wasn't being a very good wife because she didn't tell Nabal. No, she prioritized serving the Lord's anointed, his chosen servant, over supporting her husband's evil wishes. And sometimes, sometimes, not, shouldn't be often, but rarely, wives' compliance with the Lord means countering their spouse. If he's going to do Against God, then you have to do with God. That's as I, as I understand it. And here we have, in verses 20 through 22, uh, an interesting statement. And it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming, just happened, so happened, you know, she got on the donkey and was going the same way that David and his men were going. Just worked out. In God's providence, it worked out. And we, we shift from her competence... And we see her courage. Remember, David's coming with 400 dudes. And they're all girded on their swords. And she knows that evil's been plotted against Nabal and his household, which would include her. And yet, she courageously moved into it. And we get a picture of just how hostile it was in verse 21 and 22, because it says in the text, now David had said, Pay attention to these things when we're reading the Bible. He had said. It's not that he is saying. At some point previously, David had made this comment. And the comment is this. Surely, in vain, I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. And you know what? We're going to take him out. That's verse 22 in my paraphrase. Okay. That's the hostility that she was running into, knowing that this was coming against her. He, he, was, he was after her. He has returned evil for good. The same David who trusted God to avenge him in chapter 24, who trusted God, 
Now he's triggered. I'm going I'm to take her out. And as I said before, we share it, folks. We share it. You know, parents, some of you, you, you sacrificed your life to raise your kids, and then they get up to be adults, and you know what they do? They turn their back on you. They ignore you. They distance themselves from you. They go in a way that's completely opposite of the way you raised them, and you're going, what is that? They returned you evil for good. And how do you deal with that? You return me evil for good. Faithful employers pass over faithful employees for promotions. Because of politics. Some guy is in a relationship with some girl and he dumps her for another girl. And she's going, what's that? But God providentially brought the right person to restrain David's folly. Secondly, God shows us the righteous path through the right person. All right? And the three characteristics I find in Abigail, they're not the only things, they're just three things that came out, stuck out to me, uh, that marked Abigail's confrontation of the Lord's chosen servant, his anointed, that turned him from vice to virtue. First of all, her humility. It's fascinating as you, as you, as you read through verses 23 through 31, that in her posture, she gets off the donkey and she falls at his feet, okay? On her face before David, bowed down to him. And then the text says that she was at his feet. Then in her proclamation, not only in her posture, she was down before him, humiliating herself before him, but in her proclamation. Fourteen times, fourteen times in verses 23 through 31, she says, my Lord. Four times she says, your maidservant. Folks, she had no, I mean, David was nothing to her, but now her Lord, her master. She was a servant of David because she understood who David was. That's the, that's the next point. But she asked David, basically, just ignore what, what worthless man says and, uh, and, and pay attention to what I say because uh, I have more discernment. She didn't say that, but she does have more discernment. And listen to her reasonableness. She says, I didn't see the young guys, implying that if I had, things would be different. I would have lobbied for a, a different outcome, but it didn't happen. Then we see her responsibility. The text says, she says, first thing she says is, on me be the blame. She took responsibility for what she had not done. And then later she says, please forgive your maidservant. She's taking responsibility for things that she hadn't done to appease his anger and to say, I'll take the blame. And then we see her spirituality. In verses 26 and 27, she argued that since God had restrained David from shedding blood and avenging himself, now when did he do that? Well, most immediately he'd done it in chapter 24 against Saul, but I'm not so sure she knew that. But she knew that up to this point, it's a masterpiece of her psychological uh, approach to David. She's telling him, complimenting him on what he's done when she knows in his heart he's raging. It's like, oh, David, you're such a good guy. You know, you've restrained your revenge. You haven't shed blood and you, you've, you've not avenged yourself up to this point. You know, 
And so she's, she's masterfully uh, encouraging him and telling him thus far. Was so, so, he, so, he, so here's the point. Continue, David, to trust God, to avenge your, you. And let Nabal, this is uh, verse 37, let Nabal and his enemies, uh, let Nabal and, and your enemies go the same way. Well, we find out later in chapter, or in verse 25, verse 37, that Nabal dies. <laughs> So just let, let, the, let God take care of them, you take care of you. It's kind of how I understand it. She offered him a gift to dissuade his revenge. And then I want you to read with me verses 28 uh, through 30. Well, I, I did read it, but I'm just going to summarize it, okay? She articulated God's plan for David. And I asked myself, how did she know this? I want you to read through it with me, verses 28 through 31. She says, please forgive your, the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for you, my Lord, an enduring house. Where did she get that? This is 2 Samuel 7. This is a promise from Nathan. A pre-prophetic promise, if you will. And she's telling him what, what, and then she says, you'll make for you an, an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battle. You're fighting God's battles. She understands he's fighting for God. And the evil shall not be found in you all your days, and you should, should anyone arise up and pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord. God is protecting you, David. But the lies of your enemies, I love this, he will sling, he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. I mean, your minds are going, right? Back to chapter 17, and David with a sling. And who was really responsible for the sling that took care of the enemies of Israel? God Almighty. And David attested to it in 17. She's reminding him, David, it's God. It's God. It's God. He's got you. So she says, God will preserve David's life from those who pursue you like Saul. To make an enduring house like Nathan promised. But he hasn't promised it yet. <laughs> because he fights for the Lord. He fights the Lord's battles. And he walks in integrity. I like that. You know, evil's not going to come into your house. Again, she's prophesying. Like, right? Don't let this... Don't, don't prove me wrong, David. You, 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 you got this. And then, amazingly, this is just... Well, I'm sorry. Verse 30, and it shall come about when the Lord shall do for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you. This is verse 30. And shall appoint you ruler over Israel. Who knew that? Well, we, we know that Jonathan had declared it in 23 verse 17. We know that Saul had just declared it in chapter 24, verse 20. We knew that David knew it. We knew that Samuel knew it, but Samuel was gone. And here she is telling him, you're going to be the king. And when that happens, when you're the king, you don't want to let the shedding of blood and the avenging of yourself be a scourge or a blot on your kingship. It's like, wow, is she holding him up in a way that you and I wish that others would hold us up? Absolutely. She argued that David would be foolish to, to let his stellar record be, be blotted out. 
Marvelously and mercifully, Abigail's intervention prevented his folly. And guess what? It propelled his faith. See, the point is not just we're confronting people so that they don't sin. We're propelling them on to further faithfulness in God. Uh, there's a story in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul goes uh, to see the, the Galatians and, and there's this dude named Peter. And, you know, before, before Paul gets there, Peter's like hanging out with, the, with everybody, you know, doing everything. When Paul shows up, Peter's like, all of a sudden, I don't have anything to do with the Gentiles. And Paul says, what's that? You hypocrite. He calls him out in public. Why? Because he's pious? No, because he, he's spurring him on. This is what God wants us to do. So there is this, this test. Then there's the turning. Providentially, God turns us away. And then there's the treasure of our Lord's providence. And the two areas for which he gives thanks, this is David gives thanks. If you look with me at verse 32, then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, no, don't skip this, who sent you. Providence. God sent her. Sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself of my own hand. David rejoiced in Abigail's presence. He rejoiced in her perspective, her discernment. And he rejoiced in in uh, the providence that restrained his foolishness. It's like, you did it, Abigail. Her, her presence, her perspective, and God's power that, that restrained him. In verse, he says uh, down in verse 35, that's where I get the power part, because he said in verse 35, so David received her from his aunt, uh, wait a second. Oh, ne- verse 34, nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives who has restrained me from harming you so her presence with him right her perspective and God's power to restrain him all of providence all God working in David's life to keep him from doing stupid stuff God does that for us he brings people into our lives godly people he brings godly people into our lives that that we recognize and rejoice in God's use we should, in God's use of human instruments to uh, restrain his servants. Uh, Marla and I just celebrated 37 years uh, uh, marriage. And I can testify to the truth that that woman has been responsible for restraining me and f- spurring me on in faithfulness. Now, if she was here, she would also testify that there's a whole lot of time she didn't uh, restrain me and wasn't able to. But praise God for the people he brings into our lives who speak truth into our lives, who love us enough to not let us get by with stupid stuff and don't let us, and they, they prevent us and restrain us from evil and they propel us to faithfulness. And don't we want to be those kind of people? We thank God for those people and we want to be those people. And this is one of the neat things. Praise God that he providentially prompts the people of God to speak the truth of God, to fellow servants of God, to be obedient to God for the glory of God. Praise God. It's his glory. 
He uses believers in, in each other's lives to prevent evil and promote faithfulness. And he does that when we're returned evil for good. When, when you do the good and, and God brings people in. He does that for us. When a neighbor's dog bites you. And you need somebody to say, keep me from getting uh, violent. I've had it happen to me before. Not, it wasn't a neighbor. It was somebody I was walking. You know, I had a, had a church member, not here, had a church member. I walked, in, I walked up to their house to pick him up to go somewhere, and the dog came out and, and nabbed me. And I went, hmm. Uh, he was there, so he restrained me. Uh, when, when our employer publicly berates us or puts us down, when, when our family neglects us, forgets us or maybe intentionally maybe not so much when a friend betrays us when we refuse when we're refusing to forgive another person's offense God brings these people into our lives and they help restrain us help motivate us and I think we need to praise God for that when I'm when I'm uh, waxing eloquent about uh, you know somebody's misuse of the the Lord's name and condemning them for profanity but you know I'm uh, I'm really engaged in a lot of gluttony it's like, you know, sometimes you need somebody to say, wait a second, here. You, you, you know, don't swear, but, you know, pig out. I'm not sure that there's a consistency here in the biblical application of truth. That's what we need. Verse 35 says this, So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up to your house in peace. I have listened to you. I have granted your request. In that, that's interesting because the phraseology is the same phraseology used in Genesis 32. I have lifted up your face, which is exactly what Jacob was hoping he, he could do for, with Esau. He would, that Esau would lift up his face in the sense of seeing him and accepting him and not condemning him and receiving him. You've got to admire David. I mean, he was headed the wrong path, but he regarded her advice. He received her gift and he restrained his wrath. Secondly, we're, 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 we're thankful for God's reliability. Another aspect of this text is we see God's faithfulness. And David saw it too. If you look with me at verse 37, but uh, when it came about in the morning, when he, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, verses 30, 37 and 38. Um, Ten days later, Nabal's dead. <laughs> it's like, what's that about? I think what it's about, at, at minimum, it's about this. David, I got this. God speaking. Do you see, you wanted to take him out, but it, it didn't take me long. Uh, I got him. And he's your enemy, and I took care of it. We're, 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 we're thankful. Abigail had shared when Nabal, Nabal was sober, but uh, because he had excluded God, God terminated him. That's my understanding of it. He had excluded God, and God took him out. That's what God will do with those who cut him out. And David praised God in uh, the ensuing verses. If you look at verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, get this, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has returned the evildoer, evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Well, that's it. So what is David doing? He's praising God who pleaded his cause. He saw it and pled it. He prevented his corruption and he punished his enemy. 
It's a win-win-win. He pleaded his cause, prevented his corruption, and punished his enemies. Do we trust God enough to do that? Do I trust God enough to plead my cause to keep me from sin and to take care of my enemies? Or do I have to do it myself? He's reliable. That's what he proved to David. He proves the same thing to us. The Lord graciously puts up roadblocks to restrain our foolishness and and reliably brings about justice in his time, not my time. He's got our backs, okay? He's got your back if you're his child. That's, I think, what the, the thing is. He worked in David, and that should give us confidence to trust God in every circumstance. I don't have to take things into my own hands. Now we're going to see in chapter 26... David has a really, really good opportunity to apply the truth that he learns in chapter 25. Abigail then accepts this marriage proposal from David, and that's a whole other story we could get into. I'm not going to get into a lot about the marriage and who he married. He married Abigail, he married Ahinoam, and then he was already married to Michael, and Saul gave Michael away, and here's the deal. Short version. Abigail was Nabal's widow, and Nabal was the Jeff Bezos of Maon. And so, by marrying Abigail, he not only got a trophy wife, but he got a treasure that would uh, steal him for his future pursuits. Okay? Uh, the deal with McCall, or Michael, uh, McCall, that Saul had given her away indicates to me that there's still this rift. The rift that is continuing, and it's going to play out as we continue on. So uh, there, things haven't been settled between Saul and David, but that's another thing. I think we just need to look at this. That believers, David's example shows us that God providentially provides to prevent our foolishness. To propel us on uh, to faithfulness and to punish our foes. And praise God that when we obedient, we live in obedience to him, we can trust that he'll take care of us. He'll, he'll provide and he'll, he'll prove himself faithful. That's the, the challenge. And we praise God and we pray to be those that will be the hand of God and instruments of God to be the preventers. We praise God for him in our lives and we want to pray to be those people. And now if you're here... This morning, you're listening online, and you're like, I don't know about all this Jesus stuff. I don't know about this God stuff. I'm not sure I really like all this. Just consider that we're all Nabals to begin with, okay? We're all fools. The Bible says in uh, Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, uh, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's where we all start. And we see what happens to the fool who said in his heart, there is no God. There's uh, no one righteous, no, not one. What happens to that person who denies God, who dishonors his son, they die. And it's not just a physical death. It's a spiritual separation from God. And so there's a passage in Scripture that uh, there, there's this other servant of the Lord, a uh, chosen servant of the Lord, that is a descendant of David who didn't make the mistakes that David made. And that servant of the Lord went to the cross, enduring the hostility of the Nabals against himself that we might be children of God. And the Bible says in John chapter 5 um, this, He says, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father 
who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, this is Jesus speaking, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death to life. This is John 5. Honor the Son, you honor God. And if you honor the Son, you, you do that by believing in the Son that his death on the cross, just like these two young ladies, his death on the cross paid the debt that you owe to God and the wrath that you deserve has been taken away because you're trusting in Christ and his death alone is the payment for your sin and his resurrection is the proof that he conquered death that you are a righteous child of God. You're no longer a fool who denies God, denies his son, and dies apart from Christ. And as we take bread and juice at the end of our service, that's what we remember. We understand that we're remembering what Christ did as the payment for our sins, so it's a point of time to celebrate If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's a time to contemplate before we celebrate, to get our hearts right with God and to confess our sin and to say, Lord, I don't deserve what you did. I was a Nabal, but you rescued me. Or I am a Nabal, please rescue me. And now I invite you. As the Lord leads and praise team will come, they're going to sing. And you examine your heart, confess known sin, and come and take these elements. And if you can't take it in good conscience, don't take it. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, no pressure. You can come to the table at the back, the table in the front. You can take the elements there. You can take them back to your chair. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for David. But most of all, I thank you for you. I thank you for Abigail. Most of all, I thank you for you. I thank you for an unnamed servant who went to Abigail. But all of it, Father, is part of your providential plan to keep a, a king from doing something that he would regret and cause him grief. As an example for us, Lord Jesus, that you care. And you bring people into our lives to prevent us from sinning, restraining our sin, to propel us to faithfulness. And you do truly punish our enemies. And for that, we give you thanks and praise.